Our sermon text today is John 1, 14 through 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's right excuse me, who's at the Father's side, He has made him known. May God reveal light and life through His Word, by His Spirit, so that we may believe and have eternal life. Grateful once again to be able to step into the pulpit here at Trinity and preach God's Word this morning. I continue to benefit from Pastor Mao's preaching through the various books of the Bible. I love that we are now in the Gospel of John. Before that, I love that we were in the book of Ruth. And I love that before that, and with considerable swagger, our pastor preached through a book of the Bible that was named after him, or that he was named after. I forgot which way it went. But I'm delighted to be in the Gospel of John together. It's rich, it's profound. It's full of light and life and encouragement and hope as it presents the Lord Jesus as the Word made flesh to bring us eternal life as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us and preserves us on our journey to the place that he has prepared for us. I read something recently about how the Gospel of John was used um, in Charles Spurgeon's ministry, and I thought that I would share that. Uh, There was a place that Charles Spurgeon went to preach, and he wasn't sure how it would sound. He wanted to see how his voice would sound, how how his voice would project, and if he would be loud enough. So he chose simply to go there, repeat something later from John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it a few times and then left. And then later, as it happened, someone was working in the building and said, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but said, hey, just FYI, the sound check was the moment when I converted and became a follower of Christ. How fitting for someone who would become a famous pastor. And by the way, it was never you. It's simply the word of the Lord being used by the Holy Spirit to bring people to eternal life. And of course, that is what the Gospel of John is for, to bring us to eternal life. Now, our passage this morning is still in the beginning, the opening chapter of John, still in the prologue, as it's often called. We've had two sermons so far in the prologue. We've heard themes like Jesus as the Word, being eternally with God the Father, Jesus as the giver of light and life, and John the Baptist as a witness to the Word. Of course, you'll notice that today in, in our passage, John 1, 14 to 18, we're not done with Jesus as the Word, and I suppose at Trinity Bible Church we never are because it is always up there on the wall. We're not, ju- we're not done with Jesus as the Word, but in this passage, John explicitly teaches us about the Word becoming flesh and all that that involves. When I contemplated uh, this passage this week, I was reminded of something that happens in Middle-earth as I often am when I'm thinking about the Bible and theology. This part of the story of Middle-earth is a little bit in the weeds, a little bit in the background details, so it's possible that only Jake Franklin, if he is even here, will understand what I'm talking about and that I'm taking a great risk in referring to the Lord of the Rings. In any event, let me just highlight one of the main characters in the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf. For the uninitiated, that would be the wizard guy with the pointed hat and the neat fireworks. 
In Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is sent to help Middle-earth because Middle-earth is facing an evil ruler, Sauron. But something that a true Middle-earth nerd would know about is that Gandalf was sent from somewhere else to come to Middle-earth. He's actually sent from a place of peace and happiness, a heavenly paradise sort of place. His name there was Oloran, and he was, maybe you might say, like, a, like an angel or like a second-level angel. But when he's sent to Middle-earth and becomes Gandalf, he's not quite what he was before. His understanding of his own background is a bit fuzzy. He's not quite fully himself. You might say his power is, is diminished in some way when he comes to help Middle-earth. Now, as much as I like to talk about Gandalf, I'm actually bringing him up because the situation is very different with Jesus the Word. Today's passage teaches us that Jesus the Word became flesh. As we will see, however, that does not mean that he gave up being the Word. He did not give up being the Word who is with the Father. It does not mean that he was diminished in any way. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly the sort of Savior and King that we needed. One who comes to us and becomes like us without ceasing to be who he was. You might think of someone coming to help you, but then in coming, losing his strength. As if you're in a, bu a burning building and someone comes in to save you and then uh, he's run out of energy and can't get you out. Or you might think of someone who's very strong, but is also very aloof and never comes to help. It's nice to think of someone who cares, but isn't strong. And it is maybe awe-inspiring to think of someone who is strong, but does not care. But of course, you know where this is going. Jesus, the word of the Father, is both mighty to save and near enough to do the saving. Really, all I'd like us to do together this morning is to meditate on the person of Jesus, the, the, the word and the son of the Father, and see what that may mean for our Christian life. The main point, I think, or at least a main point in the passage can be expressed in this way. The Word became flesh to bring us grace and truth. The Word became flesh to bring us grace and truth. You might say, hey, there's only one point today. Well, don't rejoice too quickly because I'd like to highlight 11 subpoints along the way. <laughs> I'm not a Baptist after all, so... I could dance at a wedding on a Saturday night and then have more than three points in a sermon on a Sunday morning. <laughs> now, whether you are a seasoned follower of Christ, a newcomer to the church, or someone who is not sure you want to be in church at all, this passage in the Gospel of John gives us life-changing truth about Christ. So let me pray for this time, and then let's dive in together. Gracious Father, we give thanks to you. We could not give thanks to you enough for the Word made flesh. We give you thanks for your holy gospel. We give you thanks for the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would bless us, that you would change our hearts as we continue through the gospel of John. Help us to come away with a greater love of Christ our Savior and a richer commitment to follow him and represent him in all that we do. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first subpoint in my merciless list of 11 subpoints is simply that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. This echoes what Pastor Mal emphasized two weeks ago in the first sermon. Calling Jesus the Word means that he is the, he's the perfect concept or expression of God the Father, the perfect expression of the Father's wisdom. If you look back at verse 1, Jesus the Word is both a distinct person from the Father and in that sense, he is with God, the Father, according to verse 1. 
And he also shares the Father's divine nature, the Father's godness. And in that sense, he's not only with the Father, but is also himself God, according to verse 1. What a rich verse. He's with God and he is God. He is with God the Father. But as he shares the Father's nature, he is also himself God. Think about what that means in this context where we're talking about the Word becoming flesh. When the Father sent someone to bring us new light and new life, He did not send an angel. He did not send even the mightiest angel. He did not send a mere creature. Instead, the Father sent His own co-equal Son, the perfect expression of His own wisdom into the world. That's why John 3.16 can teach, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, because it wasn't just any sort of gift. He sent not just anyone, but his own co-equal son to bring us eternal life. The task required nothing less than someone who is true God and the, ge- the generosity of the Father provided nothing less than a son who is true God. Now the next subpoint has to do with that word became. The word became flesh. The word became or become is a funny word because becoming something can happen in more than one way. One way that someone becomes something is by changing from what they were into something else. That could make us think of a caterpillar, for example, becoming a butterfly, but I'm a little bit nervous of someone who is a biologist in the congregation saying, you don't actually understand how this works, so I'm going to move on and I'm going to reach for another illustration. Maybe instead you could think about what happened to my 1989 Chevy celebrity when I was in a car accident in high school. Started out looking as a very nice vehicle, looking like a very nice vehicle, maybe fit for a celebrity. But on that fateful day, it became something else. Still kind of itself, but a much lesser version of itself. I bring all of this up to say that when when John says the Word became flesh, he's not saying that the Word turned into mere flesh or gave up his godness. If that were so, he could no longer deliver us and bring us back to God. What John actually means is that the Word took the flesh upon himself, or assumed flesh, took it upon himself and made it his own. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. In taking flesh or humanity upon himself and making it his own, the Word himself is now human, even as he also remains divine. In other words, he's one person, with two natures, a divine nature and human nature. Let's keep thinking about that for a minute. Did we think maybe that when God promised to save his people in the Old Testament, promised to save his people from sin and death, guilt and spiritual blindness, did we think maybe he would keep his distance and do the saving from afar? Maybe some of us did, but think about this verse in Isaiah 57. This is Isaiah 57, 15. It says, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God does come to meet the lowly and revive them. But John 1.14 actually specifies it's not just that God is present with the lowly. It's that God himself takes on lowly flesh. He does not merely help man, he becomes man. That's the love and the power of God, and that's the supernatural event that we celebrate in the season of Advent and Christmas. 
Sometimes sermon applications take the form of directions on things to do. But I think at this point, one good application is simply to sit back and say, whoa, the Word became flesh. Now, after really drawing attention to that word became, the next subpoint focuses on the word flesh. I'm cheating. I'm just saying the same thing over, but highlighting a slightly different word. Subpoint three focuses on that word flesh. We've already observed that the word became flesh, but let's think for a moment more about what flesh means. Now, we should observe in John 1.14, flesh means human nature, body and soul. By saying flesh, John's not excluding Jesus' human soul. He's actually referring to a whole human nature, body and soul. In other words, Jesus the Word is fully human. But there's a point when John calls the humanity of Jesus flesh. When he calls it flesh, he's really highlighting that it was a lowly human nature like ours. To understand that use of the word flesh, you might think of someone saying, I'm only flesh and blood, as if to say, my humanity is not infinite or omnipotent. The point is not that Jesus was morally corrupt. He was not morally corrupt. But it, the point is that he did take on a weak and mortal humanity before his resurrection. Some of us may think that when Jesus the Word took on a human nature and made it his own, he must have taken on, say, a Terminator version of humanity that was above pain and weakness, but it was not like that. While remaining all-powerful in his divine nature or godness, Jesus the Word took on a human nature truly subject to pain and weakness. I would always emphasize he remains all-powerful in his divine nature or his godness, but as true man, he was subject to weakness and pain. Later on in the Gospel of John itself, we'll see that Jesus weeps when his friend Lazarus dies. And he says his soul is troubled in John 12, 27. If you've ever wondered whether you have a Savior who is adequate for you, you need to remember that as true God, he is invincible. And as true man, he experienced real weakness and pain on the road to the crucifixion and can sympathize with your sorrows. Thanks be to God for such an amazing gift. And you could read about that gift even more in the book of Hebrews. The next subpoint, which is delighting the little ones, the next subpoint <laughs> is that Jesus the Word dwelt or tabernacled among us. He didn't just appear in the flesh in a flash and then disappear. He stayed for a while, he dwelt. The language that's used should call our minds back to God in a less complete sense, dwelling or tabernacling among the people of God in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, the Israelites left Egypt and there was a special tabernacle or tent set up. The tabernacle is, just means tent. A special place where God's priests would serve and where God would meet Moses in the book of Exodus. The fact that Jesus coming to us is described as tabernacling, it not only indicates that he stayed on earth for a while, but also that he is the God of the Old Testament in our midst. Jesus tabernacled as God tabernacled in the Old Testament. I think one of the applications you might draw from this statement from John has to do with how you look at the whole Bible. 
In some circles, it's tempting to think of the Old Testament God over there and then the, the New Testament God over here, as if maybe the Old Testament God over there is aloof or cruel or something like that, and then there's the New Testament God over here who is uh, nice or something like that. In fact, however, there is one God, one Creator, who is the Lord over both Old Testament and New Testament times. God in the Old Testament, He is holy and majestic and fearsome and also rich in mercy. Think about, for example, Jeremiah 32, 41. God says, I will rejoice in doing you good. That is a God that I would want to serve, God who rejoices in doing us good. Or Micah 7, 18. He does not stay angry forever because he delights in steadfast love. And God in the New Testament, he is rich in mercy and also holy and majestic as he was in the Old Testament. After all, the same Jesus we learn about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same Jesus, his holiness and his majesty causes John to fall on his face as though he is dead in Revelation chapter 1. God himself is not changed in the shift from Old Testament to New Testament, and he himself, in the person of the Word or the Son, has come to dwell or tabernacle among us in the Incarnation. So my encouragement to you, fellow Christian, is to keep hearing and reading the whole Bible and to rest in the fact that the one God, the Holy Trinity, is fulfilling His eternal plan through the first coming of the Son and the second coming, eventually, when He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, of course, there are new and wonderful things about what God is doing in the New Testament. There's a richer outpouring of God's grace, and we'll consider that more in a moment. But our next subpoint here picks up on what's next in John 1.14. And that is, Jesus has glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus has glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The relation of Jesus to the, the relation of Jesus, God the Son, to His Father, it is unique. And it's, it's very distinct from merely human father-son relations. And yet there is also something similar. Human fathers give to their sons, and human sons receive from their fathers. When there's a human father and human son, the father passes on a common human nature to his son. Hopefully that makes sense. Human parent, therefore human offspring. You can think about a human father passing on certain attributes as well, but I won't go into too much detail there because there might be some sons present looking over at their fathers and thinking, well, dad's got kind of a big nose and goofy ears and too much hair or too little hair and he gets grumpy on Sunday afternoons and so forth. I don't know that I want all of that passed on to me. Uh, happily, however, there are serious distinctions between the relationship of a purely human son to a purely human father and the relationship of the eternal son to his eternal father. First of all, God the Father has eternally shared his divine nature with God the Son. So it's not as though there was a point in time when the Son had to become God. He just always was God together with his Father. Also, God the Father gives only what is good and excellent to his Son. So, when it says the disciples saw the glory of Jesus, the word glory is of the only Son from the Father. We should be thinking, yes, it's only fitting that Jesus, the Son of the Father, would receive glory from the Father. 
Glory, we might say, is the splendor or the majesty of God's perfection, especially as that's manifested to us creatures. The use of the word glory here should also make us look back to the Old Testament. We just considered how Jesus, the word tabernacling among us, echoes God dwelling or tabernacling among his people in Exodus. Now John's talk of seeing God's glory while he tabernacled on earth echoes Moses' request to see God's glory in Exodus. You might remember what happened back then. Moses is keen to know that God is going with him and the people of Israel into the promised land. Moses doesn't want to go if God is not going. So Moses asks to see God's glory. You can read about that in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses asks to see God's glory and something remarkable happens or maybe unexpected. It's not that Moses has no miraculous experience of God, but he does not see God directly, God in his very essence. What happens is that God is said to pass by and God proclaims his name and his glory by announcing his attributes, love, faithfulness, and so forth. In a sense, in the book of Exodus, Moses got to see God because Moses had a special role and was God's representative to the people. But Moses didn't see God directly or immediately in his very essence. There was a a greater seeing then that took place when John and the first disciples saw Jesus the Word incarnate on earth. Peter, James, and John even got to see his glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we read about in the Gospels. If I'm being honest, there have been times when I've thought, why didn't I get to see Jesus walking on earth when he was here? That would be such a boost to my faith. I don't know that I could do well living back then because I'm pretty used to things like indoor plumbing and deodorant at this point. But how amazing would it have been to see the Lord teaching alongside the sea? Or even better, to see the resurrected Lord right before he ascended to heaven. Well, if you've ever had those thoughts, I actually have good news for you. Jesus has already taken care of this for you. Listen to his prayer in John 17, 24. I'm cheating and drawing from later things in John's gospel. But listen to his prayer for you in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He prays that we would see his glory. Won't the Father answer the prayer of his beloved Son? Of course he will. That means that all of us who have turned our hearts to the Son and trusted in him for eternal life, we will get to be with him. We will get to see his glory when we die and or when he returns. And when we see it, we will never be sad again. Our next point gives us more understanding of what the glory of the Son involves. It's a glory full of grace and truth. A glory full of grace and truth. This is actually still echoing Exodus 33 to 34. Remember when Moses asked to see God's glory, God proclaimed his attributes and he said, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That pairing of those two, steadfast love and faithfulness, recurs throughout the Old Testament. You might think, for example, of Psalm 100 verse 5. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Commentators on the Gospel of John regularly observe that John's pairing of grace and truth represents that Old Testament pairing of steadfast love and faithfulness. The grace is God's rich 
and unmerited favor or kindness. And the truth here is faithfulness. It certainly is the case that Jesus reveals the truth in the sense of giving us knowledge of God and correcting our misunderstandings. We will come back to that again in the sermon. But in this particular use of the word truth, it seems that the focus is on truth in the sense of faithfulness. Think about when someone says one spouse is true to another. It means faithful, faithful to the marriage vows. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus, the word, is full of grace, unmerited kindness toward us, and full of faithfulness, a readiness to fulfill all of God's promises. Notice that it doesn't say Jesus has some faithfulness. It says he's full of faithfulness, abounding in faithfulness. He may let you experience, or he may let me experience times of pain and darkness in our spiritual life, but he will never stop being faithful. As 2 Timothy 2.13 teaches us, even when we have weaknesses in our faith, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that reassuring? It is never actually grounded in how well I'm doing. It's grounded in whether God will just continue to be God. And he won't stop being God. I, I would hasten to add, we do have to have real faith in Jesus. He is the only way to God. If we don't have real faith in Jesus, we are facing God's condemnation. He's the only way to God. So please do put your trust in him for eternal life. But as you undergo weaknesses, just keep in mind, if Jesus promised to take you as a believer to be with him and to see his glory, he will see it done even in the midst of your weaknesses. Our next subpoint goes into verse 15. Jesus after and before John. Let me read verse 15 for us. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is a fascinating statement. John points out that John the Baptist's public ministry actually started before Jesus' public ministry. If you'll recall, John the Baptist even baptized Jesus. You might say that is a feather in someone's cap. I think I'm getting the family dynamics here. I can be corrected later if I'm wrong, but I think I'm getting this right. Recently, our own Kevin Schneider got to baptize his older sister. And yet, with the utmost respect to Clan Schneider, baptizing the Messiah is on a bit of a different level. Be honest with yourself, if you'd, if you'd been there, if you'd been doing that instead of John the Baptist, you might have been a little bit immature about it. You might have been at a dinner party later and people were one-upping each other with their stories and you might have said, well, actually, there was this one time I was at the Jordan River. And then you go on from there and no one can one-up it. But think about John the Baptist's humility. Think about the humility in what he says. He knows Jesus' superiority and happily points away from himself and places the focus on Jesus. We've got to learn, I've got to learn to live life in that way. Our lives really are meant to be one long exercise in finding the joy of pointing away from ourselves and pointing toward the King of glory, the Lord Jesus. So I, I might encourage you to think about ways you could take small steps to become like John the Baptist here, directing attention toward Christ instead of yourself. Maybe that's something to think out loud about with your community group. How can I take small steps 
to be directing attention toward Christ and away from myself. Before moving on from this point about John the Baptist, though, let's just think a little bit more about the content of his statement. Jesus was after John, but also before John. After John, with respect to the beginning of his public ministry. But before John, with respect to his divine superiority. Give me a head nod if, if, if you're following, at least a little bit. After John, with respect to the beginning of his public ministry, but before John, if we're talking about his divine superiority. So there's an afterness and a beforeness. After John, with respect to the, public, the beginning of his public ministry and the incarnation, but he's before John with respect to his eternal existence and divine superiority. One of the things I think we're being trained to do here is to think about and speak about Jesus on the basis of his humanity and also on the basis of his divinity or his godness. Some things apply to Christ with regard to his humanity, being after John. Other things apply to Christ with regard to his divinity, being before John. As man, he was born at a particular time in history. As God, he is eternal. Or we could think more expansively about this for a moment. And I'm taking a risk here because I know I can easily get excited about this stuff. And there's not a guarantee that dozens and dozens of people in the same room are going to get as excited as I will. But let's just think about this as putting the golf ball on the tee for celebrating Christmas. We're thinking about Jesus becoming man and while also being God. We're just, we're just queuing, ourselves, queuing this up for Christmas. We could think about what applies to Jesus as man, what applies to Jesus as God. Now, as man, Jesus could be in only one place at a time. Simultaneously, as God, he remained omnipresent everywhere all at once. As man, located in one place at one time. As God, at the same time, everywhere, all at once. We've just been thinking so far about Jesus, the Word, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. But we might add here, as we're thinking about this, as God, he actually didn't leave heaven. As God, he was and always is omnipresent together with the Father and the Spirit. As God, he remains everywhere, even while as man, he is just in one place. As God, he was already present on earth, even in the Virgin Mary, by sustaining her very being. As man, though, he did begin to be present on earth in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So in the mystery of the Incarnation, it is not an idle riddle to say Jesus was after John and before John. Or, thinking about his omnipresence as God and his brand new presence as man, you could say this and think, it about, think over it at lunch. Jesus, the Word, went somewhere that he already was without leaving where he'd been. <laughs> it is true. He's the only one about whom you could say such a thing. Our next subpoint goes into verses 16 and 17. Let me read verses 16 and 17 once again. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through, through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John says that from Jesus' fullness we've received grace upon grace. It could be translated grace instead of grace, maybe meaning that there was grace given to God's people before and then an even greater outpouring of God's grace when the Word became flesh. Either way, the main point is that from the fullness of Jesus the Word, we receive an abundance of grace, an abundance of God's kindness and God's gifts 
for salvation and eternal life. Now in verse 17, there is a distinction drawn between law and Moses on the one hand and grace and Jesus on the other hand. Give me a head nod if you see it there as well. Law and Moses on the one hand, grace and Jesus on the other hand. I think it's worth it to take a step back here and try to get some clarity. The main reason I say that is this. There was grace active in the days of Moses in life under the old covenant. And there is also a sense in which we are called to obey God's laws, God's commands today after the word became flesh. So why is it that in a place like verse 17, law goes with Moses and grace goes with Jesus? I think one of the key things here is to bear in mind different ways that the words law and grace can be used. If law just means a command from God, then of course law is given not only through Moses, but also through Jesus. Jesus gives many commands in his Sermon on the Mount, for example, and he sums it all up in the command to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Also, if grace broadly means God's unmerited kindness that leads us to eternal salvation, then of course, grace was given in the days of Moses and the Old Covenant. God was already graciously forgiving those who put their trust in his promises, even back in Abraham's time. For more on that, you can look at Genesis 15 and Romans 4. That's always how people received forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation, by grace, through faith. But there are more particular uses of the words law and grace that can help us understand why one of them would be associated with Moses and the other one would be associated with Jesus. Oftentimes the word law doesn't just mean a command from God. Oftentimes it means the particular requirements of the old covenant on the basis of which God's people could remain in the promised land. In that regard, law is peculiar to the days of Moses and to life under the old covenant. Likewise, sometimes the word grace doesn't just mean God's unmerited kindness for salvation. Sometimes it especially refers to the greater outpouring of grace that happens when Jesus comes and pours out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In that regard, grace is peculiar or more peculiar to the time when the word becomes flesh. So generally speaking, law and grace are always part of the life of God's people. But when law and grace are being used more specifically, one goes with the old covenant and the other goes with the new covenant. So on the one hand, you and I are required to show our faith in Christ by walking in obedience to God's commands. Yet on the other hand, we live in a much greater outpouring of God's grace, much fuller revelation and fulfillment of God's promises and even a greater empowerment to learn to obey God's commands. John puts us in our context in the flow of history, and it is an amazing gift to get to live in a time that is so specially characterized by God's grace in every way. All right, let's consider our next subpoint here, which goes into verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Verse 18 obviously says more than this, but let's sit with this for a second. No one has ever seen God. It's interesting that there are certain individuals in the Old Testament who are said to see God. I'm just thinking of that person in the pew who's saying, but, 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 I know something. And of course you want to see how what you know actually fits with what John says here. I'm just trying to help you, that's all. There are certain individuals who are said to see God. For example, Jacob, when he wrestles with God in Genesis 32, 
Or Moses when he meets with God in Exodus 33. Or Isaiah when he has a vision of God's heavenly throne in Isaiah 6. Yet John 1.18 says there's no one who's ever seen God. Well, I think the key factor, or at least a key factor here, is that even though people like Jacob and Moses and Isaiah, they had special experiences of God or a symbolic vision of God, none of them directly saw God's very essence, God's very godness. That's something that awaits believers when they pass away or when the Lord returns. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, now we walk by faith, not by sight. Or as he puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see now as in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. It's worth thinking about what this means for us in the Christian life today. No one has ever seen God. God's not an ordinary object of our sense perception. On the way to heaven, we can't immediately see God as we can see this pulpit or the pews in this room. Among other things, I would suggest to you that that means we have to approach God and know God on God's terms and in God's appointed ways. Be careful then about trying to sidestep those appointed ways of coming to know God as though we might have a right to engineer our own immediate experiences of God at will. Of course, God has revealed himself in the order and beauty of the universe around us as John 1 teaches us. The Father made all things through Jesus the Word. From the created order, we learn that there is a creator and he's wise and powerful and so forth. But God has preeminently revealed himself in Christ and Scripture. As John 1.18 tells us, the Son has made the Father known. That means that instead of seeking our own immediate we might say unpromised immediate experiences of God, we have to seek God in his incarnate word and in his written word that bears witness to the incarnate word. Now, to the second to last subpoint here. After telling us that no one has ever seen God, John goes on to tell us that the Son is at the Father's side. The Son is at the Father's side. I think it's good to pause and think about what John says about the Son here. First of all, after explicitly calling him God in John 1.1, he now calls him the only Son who is God in John 1.18. It's pretty hard to translate in English, and the ESV says the only God, but you might translate it the only Son who is himself God. Also, to use the terms of our ESV translation, he is the Son at the Father's side. Other translations sound more old school and say, in the Father's bosom. I see you KJV lovers out there. If you read John 13, 23, one of the disciples is positioned this way toward Jesus, resting at his side or resting on his chest. This positioning calls to mind being deeply loved by someone. Think about someone pulling something close to their chest. It's close to their heart. This is a, a profound description when it's applied to Jesus and the Father. Jesus is beloved by the Father and shares the Father's knowledge and plan. One of the amazing things, things, though, in John's gospel is that even though we can never become sons and daughters of the Father in the unique way that Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father, Jesus still does grant us a participation in his sonship status. We talked about that last week where Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. 
he grants us a participation in his sonship status. It says in John 17, 23, that the Father loves us just as he has loved his son. Amazing. I always tell people that when I had COVID really bad in 2021, I couldn't read the Bible. I, ju I just was able to have, for some reason, John 17, 23 rattling around in my mind. The Father has loved us just as he has loved his eternal son. I love that verse. And it says in John 17, 26, that the love with which the Father has loved the Son is in us. That is an indescribable blessing. Though we are not God, like Jesus is God, or co-equal to the Father, Jesus connects us to himself so that we too are beloved children of the Father. And we're not separate objects of that love as though it were a sort of secondary love directed toward us. We are with Jesus as members of his own body and as objects of the Father's love toward him. That's something to reflect on forever. Christian brother or sister, God the Father has not directed a weak version of love toward you. He has actually extended to you his eternal love for his eternal son because you're now united to the eternal son. You too are in the Father's heart. Well, we'll come then to the, the final sub-point here. The Son makes the Father known. We've already been touching on this. The Son makes the Father known. It's possible for someone mistakenly to think that maybe there is a dissimilarity between Jesus and the Father. They might think maybe Jesus is good and kind, but the Father stands behind him like a brooding tyrant or something like that. Almost like Jesus had to persuade the Father to start loving us. But that is not the case. First of all, Jesus himself is righteous and holy and omnipotent and majestic, just as the Father is. And the Father is good and kind and merciful together with Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father to us, not in spite of what the Father really is, but as the Father really is. The Father is good and kind and merciful together with Jesus. It's not that Jesus had to persuade the Father to start to love us, but rather, Jesus came to reveal the love that he and the Father already eternally had for us. Anyone who turns to Christ and puts their trust in Christ for eternal life is a beloved child of God the Father. So let me conclude then with a word to anyone who hasn't turned toward Christ and put their trust in Christ for eternal life. The Bible is clear. Without Christ, you're in darkness and cut off from God. When you have Christ, though, you have light if spiritual life with God. Maybe you're new to church, or maybe you've been coming to church for a while, maybe you're further on in life, maybe you're sitting in this section up here with the teenage hooligans that I see, I see. It was, it was when I was sitting in the section of teenage hooligans when I was in church back in Michigan that I heard the gospel very clearly and, and first became a believer in Christ around 16 years old by God's grace. Maybe you've been here a long time, maybe you've been here a short time, maybe you're older, maybe you're younger. But just being here doesn't suffice. The Lord calls you to exercise faith in his son for eternal life. If you haven't done that already, or if you're sitting on the fence, let me encourage you and urge you to put your trust in Christ for eternal life and eternal joy in his presence. If you reject him, you have to know, if you reject him, you reject God and face God's condemnation deservedly. But if you place your trust in God's son, 
and receive him and choose to follow him, you become a child of God with all the privileges that that entails. If you need to talk to someone about, it, about that after the service, please feel free to come see me or one of our pastors or one of our elders or members of the church. We would be so happy to talk to you about that. Please don't hesitate to talk with one of us about putting your trust in God's Son to receive eternal life. Now let's pray together.